Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So we got a geeky science alert here. This is just an absolutely amazing story. It's over at Inside Climate News. And essentially what they're saying is that our flood risk, our mudslide risk, our drought risk, all these things are going up dramatically because these giant rivers of air in the upper atmosphere are getting bigger, they're moving faster, but most importantly, they're getting denser. They hold more moisture. Of course, they are what causes weather down here at the surface. This is climate causing weather. And so as the climate changes, as these rivers of air get more intense, the weather on the ground gets more intense. Our storms are worse, our winds are higher, and the amount of water that falls, the rains are worse. But because it's more concentrated in these specific high-moisture rivers of air, the air around it is actually drier. And so the places that are being hit by the air around them are getting droughts, and the places that are underneath these rivers of air are getting floods. So this is just, you know, consequence one of global climate change, something that was predicted for a long time. We're actually seeing it now. And it's not pretty, and it's not a good thing. And I guess the principal question that I want to ask is... How appropriate is it to use fear as a tool to motivate people, and when does that become appropriate? Generally speaking, we talk about, you know, let's just be nice, and let's motivate people by lifting them up and building them up and saying nice things and all that kind of stuff. You know, the carrot side of the strategy, rewarding people for good behavior. So if we fix climate change, we can have a planet where fewer people die of cancer because thousands of people every year in the United States die of cancer because of exhaust coming out of the back of cars and trucks, you know, soot and all these chemicals that are filling our air and our water as a result of burning fossil fuels. So that's the carrot side of it. But the stick side of it is substantial and it's getting bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier. I mean, you know, these are, I think, reasonable and serious questions. And in fact, something that we're learning about tipping points right now is even more startling. It was only 20 years ago that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, just 20 years ago, that they rolled out the concept of tipping points, that they talked about how there are these events, these moments where a new equilibrium is established, essentially, where a system 
in this case, the weather of the planet or the climate of the planet, is pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, sort of like pushing a, uh, a snowball up over the top of your roof. And it's pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until it hits the top of that roof. And then it tips over the other edge and boom, down it rolls the other side. And basically at that point, once that tipping point has been achieved, you're not going to stop that snowball from going down the other side. Or basketball or whatever. I mean, pick your metaphor of choice. And the assumption 20 years ago from the IPCC was that major irreversible tipping points, like melting the methane in the world's permafrost. There's more carbon trapped, in, principally in the form of methane, trapped or potentially methane, uh, you know, what becomes methane as a consequence of bacterial action, trapped in the world's permafrost than there is in the planet's atmosphere. So, I mean, we could be looking at a doubling, which hasn't happened since the great dying 250 million years ago when 98% of all life on Earth was wiped out and we entered a period of tens of millions of years where basically everything was dead. Life rebooted itself and out of that came whole new life forms that ended up as the dinosaurs. Actually, the dinosaurs came about as a result of the second extinction after that. But in any case, so back when the IPCC laid this out, they said that this would happen when we started hitting five or six degrees Celsius of climate change. Well, now we're learning, 20 years later, that these tipping points are being hit at one to two degrees Celsius. And this is how logarithmic this is, how rapidly things change as a consequence of hitting tipping points. For example, multi-meter rises in sea level. The sea level rising to the point where it wipes out most all of our coastal cities all around the world and renders perhaps even the majority of the world's population climate refugees. This would be a civilization-destroying event. And we thought that this would take five or six degrees Fahrenheit. Turns out at one and a half degrees Fahrenheit, and we're pretty much there right now. We're at 1.2 degrees Celsius. And, you know, another three-tenths of a degree is certainly baked into the cake already with all the carbon we've put in the atmosphere. At 1.5 degrees Celsius, that event could take 10,000 years to happen. But at 2 degrees Celsius, just a half a degree warmer, it takes less than 1,000 years. Now, the question is, at, what, 2.3 degrees? It takes 50 years, 100 years, 300 years? You know, nobody knows for sure. But what we do know is that these tipping points are getting closer and closer and closer and more and more and more worrisome. And something that we just very, very much clearly, emphatically, definitely need to be paying attention to this stuff. And we're by and large not. The COP25, the climate meeting that they just had in Madrid, essentially collapsed because Donald Trump wouldn't send anybody from the United States, and we're supposed to be leading the world in this effort. Australia has been, their political system has been hijacked by Rupert Murdoch and this billionaire mining magnate who basically run the conservative parties in Australia, so they said no. 
Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, where the rainforests are, the lungs of the planet, he's like, no. And Saudi Arabia, which you know, produces nothing but fossil fuels. A bizarre dictatorship where they recently crucified somebody. I mean, they, they torture people. They, you know, women have no rights. But it's a petro state. And they said no. And collectively, th these are endangering the planet. So it's time for us to wake up. And it's time for this to become, as Greta Thunberg said, breaking news. That we are in a climate crisis. It is one that the fossil fuel industry knew was coming and has known was coming since the 70s. Arguably even long before that. But certainly, I mean, you look at the internal documents from some of these companies in the 70s and 80s, they absolutely knew what was coming down the road. And instead of doing something about it, they started funding people with scientific credentials who were willing to lie to the public about the dangers in order to maintain their profits. This is a crime against humanity. And we need to wake people up, share the word, and get active on this thing. All of us, right now. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Dr. Ben Strauss, President, CEO, and Chief Scientist at Climate Central. ClimateCentral.org is the website. You can tweet him at Ben underscore Strauss. Uh, Dr. Strauss, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So, 340 to 480 million people. Basically, you guys have come up with, or this, this uh, new estimate was published in Nature Communications, efforts to re refine NASA's satellite elevation data, found that the number of people who will be at risk from global sea rise change as a consequence of global climate change is tripled now from previous estimates. Do I have that right? Uh, yes, you do. You want to elaborate on it? Almost the whole climate science enterprise has been focused on how sea levels will change in the future. And rightly so, that's hard to get. It's the ball that's moving and really impossible ultimately to predict with precision. But you need to know two different things to understand how many people are going to be at risk. The height of the future sea, but also the height of the land. We all tend to assume that we know the height of the land, but it turns out that we don't know that so well for large parts of the planet. Hmm. And past research that has done global assessments or assessments in many developing countries has relied on some elevation data from NASA collected by satellites, which provides what is called surface elevation data, meaning you get the height of the surface of the Earth that's closest to the sky, which includes treetops and rooftops. So on average those elevations are really uh, well above the true elevation of the ground. And the true elevation of the ground is what you need if you want to understand the risk from sea level rise and coastal flooding. Our contribution was to develop, using machine learning, a form of artificial intelligence, a new elevation data set for coastal areas worldwide that essentially eliminated this 
average error found in the NASA data, and we discovered a great deal more people are living on vulnerable land than uh, we previously understood. Remarkable. So our coasts are actually lower than we thought they were, or the land around them is lower than we thought they were. Now, this is just basically, you know, the sea comes up and it invades the land, essentially. And as we're seeing in Venice right now and in Miami Beach, and people can no longer live there and they have to flee and all that sort of thing. But that's happening as a consequence of melting ice. And a lot of the ice that's melting is in glaciers around the world, which feed some of the world's largest rivers. What's going to happen when these glaciers finally melt? I'd say the biggest area of concern is looking at the Himalayas. The rivers that they feed help to provide irrigation water and drinking water for probably well over a billion people in Southeast Asia. As those glaciers melt, we will probably see a period where the water supply actually increases because every year you have a freezing and snowing period and a melting period. But If the glaciers are stable, it means that on average, you have the same amount of melt as you have snowfall. But if the glaciers are melting, you're adding that melt to the balanced equation. So there will be a period where water seems to be plentiful, but it will be followed up in the farther future by a period where the water supply is much less regular. There's a risk that people become used to having more water, and then suddenly the water becomes quite unreliable as those glaciers dry up and then you're really subject to the whims of the weather each year. Was it a big snow year or a a low snow year? That could be extremely dangerous. And then on top of that, as a consequence of global climate change, we find that precipitation events and wind events are becoming more extreme. So some parts of our country, some parts of the world are now experiencing as regular events, what used to be considered 100-year or 500-year floods, and other parts of the world as regular events, what used to be, you know, 100-year or 500-year droughts are happening for extended periods of time. We, you know, the west coast of the United States is in a five-year drought now. Guatemala, I believe the sixth year of a very, very severe drought, a multi-hundred-year drought, and it's one of the things that's driving some of the refugees coming to the United States. I'm assuming that that also is going to affect probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. Do we have any collective estimate of the number of people worldwide who are affected by global climate change integrating all these different effects? Well, I think one simple answer is that we're all affected by global climate change in different degrees in different places. There's no place that is unaffected. We've simply changed the atmosphere and the climate for the whole planet where all of us live. You're also right to highlight that we will feel and we are feeling climate change most strongly in the extremes. And increasingly, we are able to detect a climate signal in specific individual extreme events. I should note that I think the jury is still very much out in terms of drought in Central America right now. I I recently um, saw some research suggesting that it was within the range of natural variability. I don't know whether in a formal assessment or not yet and what that will show. But overall, we are definitely seeing an increase in extreme weather because of climate change and even small changes in average temperature or average conditions can lead to large changes in the likelihood or frequency of extremes. I sometimes think of it 
imagine standing on the beach, perhaps as the tide is coming in, and watching the waves wash up the beach towards your toes. And imagine every wave coming very close, an inch away, two inches away, but you never get wet, wave after wave. Well, all you need is just a few inches of the tide coming in or a few inches of sea level rise, and suddenly you'd be getting wet with every single wave. So you, you can go from a situation where the events when you're affected or the extreme events are very rare to a situation where they're very common, even by just a small change in the average. And that's really something we're seeing all around the world today. Remarkable stuff. Dr. Ben Strauss, the president, CEO, and chief scientist at Climate Central, climatecentral.org. Dr. Strauss, thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks for having me. Great talking. Christine in Lexington, South Carolina. Hey, Christine, what's on your mind? People are exasperated. I know I am, you are. We have all these crises going on, and we feel frozen. What do people do? So thinking about, you know, the coast is burning, the West Coast is burning, hurricanes are hitting us, the Midwest is hit with hurricane-like winds blowing tractor trailers over. Obviously, there's a big climate crisis. You'd have to be deaf and dumb not to know. So what can people do? We obviously can't depend on our government because they are paid off by the oil and fossil fuel industries. So as individuals, here is a thought, and you correct me if I'm going off base. Coal industry is bankrupt. They're living on loans. The oil industry are not making a profit because it costs more to pull a barrel of oil out of the ground than it does for what they can sell it for. So they're losing money hand over fist. Where are they getting their money? Banks, the big banks, Wall Street. They're also getting hundreds of billions of dollars a year in subsidies from the federal government and state governments. Right, right. But we can make a significant dent by all of us pulling our money, whatever, big or small, pulling it out of the big banks and going to local small banks or credit unions. The Mm. big banks, Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. Those are the ones who are funding fossil fuel. And we could make a dent. People can do this without costing them any money, without a big leap of faith or a lot of energy expenditure, but you can feel like you're doing something. And if everybody did this, they'd have to wake up and stop funding these banks. Jamie Diamond, J.P. Morgan Chase, he's already cut back some on fossil fuel loans because he recognizes this, but they won't say much. He also wants to be loved when he goes to Davos. But Christine, you're absolutely right. And if you were to move your money into a local bank or even better, a local credit union where you actually become one of the owners of the credit union, you'd be in good shape. You'd probably your money is safer as well. Chris in Littleton, Colorado. Hey, Chris, what's up? Scientists say we only have a few short decades to stop pumping carbon in the atmosphere and go to a green economy or else we could reach a point of no return. And I just wanted to say that is the most important to uh, put in a green economy. The fate and future of life on Earth is at stake, or at least the life that we know on Earth. Yeah, the, the Earth could be terribly altered or we might not even survive, you know. And there are only a few short political terms left in a few short decades. Yeah, well, this is what the IPCC told us. We had 10 years, and that was, what, four years ago? 
Yeah, the current government is subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, mm-hmm. we should be outraged at that. Yeah, and I am outraged at that, and it needs to come to an end. Instead of subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, we need to be taxing them to pay for the damage that they're doing, whether it's people, the, the tens of thousands of people who get cancer from air pollution caused by the fossil fuel industry, or COPD and other lung diseases caused by the fossil fuel industry, the wildfires, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the directos, or whatever it may be. All of these things that are the direct consequence of global warming, the fossil fuel industry should be paying for. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's up? It's a substantial piece of information for the environment that I didn't see anywhere except on page A8 of the Oregonian yesterday, and it's titled Environment. The Trump administration is going to be destroying 16.7 million acres of wildlife in Alaska. They're getting the yeah, the, the, ta- the Songus uh, National It's beyond National comprehension. Forest. It says it absorbs at least eight to ten percent of the lower forty-eight uh, carbon stored. You know, it, and and they're getting away with this nonsense. It says it's America's last climate sanctuary. And then there's another article today in the paper: Trump officials in gray wolf protections across the U.S. This is what's happening yeah. on a daily basis. People just don't get it. You see what I mean? And they're, I call it the they are looting our country, Tim. Yeah, the lack of communication is is just the strategic part for the Republicans. The complacency is just scary. And I've, I've talked to you before. I've been in the same town for 30 years, and I was in sales in this area. I knew every store owner, every manager. My wife and I used to volunteer to do work for the schools and stuff, so I talked to a lot of teachers and stuff. There's The complacency situation in this country is scary. It really is, you know, people. Because yeah. yeah. if and that man, the last three months of his administration, what do you think he's going to try to do to this planet? You see what I mean? Oh, he well, the same thing he's been doing for the last four years. He's right, gutting exactly, everything. Yeah. I mean, he's, From he's, the beginning, he's just destroying yeah. and, environmental protections. And this is a classic statement that I heard yesterday. They were interviewing this one senior citizen in the Florida area, and I saw an interview with her. And they went over all the facts with her, and she said, if I die, I die. Now, how do you overcome that kind of intellect? You say nice That's knowing you. Good luck. But you see what I mean? You know, I'm guessing... We're only hearing this anecdotally because of HIPAA laws and all this kind of stuff, but we are hearing anecdotally from nurses and doctors that there's a, a substantial number of people showing up in hospital emergency rooms going, I was a Trumper and I never, you know, a Trump humper, and I never thought that it was this bad. And I thought it was just the flu. And, you know, I watched Fox News and I thought, and some of them are recording videos and things, you know, warning people, but that's what we need to be doing. Tim, thank you for the call. Robert in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Robert, what's up? I think a glaring issue with the heart climate change is all related to overpopulation of the human race. In 1850... Well, it's not entirely related to it, but it's a big piece of it, yeah. Oh, it's a gigantic piece of it. And I saw this site years ago called Zero Population. It blew my mind. 1850, a billion people. We have 7 billion plus now in such a short period of time. Unless you get the entire world on board with this, I don't think we could fix it. I really don't. Well, we had the entire world on board with it. We had the Paris Peace Accords. Pretty much every country in the world had signed on to it. China's actually really getting aggressive about this. California has said you can't sell internal combustion engines in California after 2035. Norway outlawed them two years ago. Countries all over the world are really stepping up and moving forward and trying to do something about this. And what's the Trump administration doing? Denying the science, pretending it's not happening, you know, blowing smoke. And overpopulation is a real crisis. And if you want to take on overpopulation, if you look at those countries where you have the highest rate of population growth, 
there is an absolute positive trackable almost one-to-one correlation between the status of women and the power that women have in a society and the rate at which population grows. And as the power of women in a society begins to approach equality with the power of men, and I'm not sure that there's any society where it has hit that point, but as it begins to approach that point, population stabilizes, and it typically stabilizes at less than two, which means that population will start to slowly decrease. You know, it's just very straightforward. There are a lot of things that we should be doing and can be doing. You know, we should have worldwide birth control pills like Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush were big advocates of. We should be promoting birth control here in the United States. And we need to be reducing our footprint. We are 4.5% of the world's population. We're using 25% of the world's fossil fuels. That's crazy. I think what California is doing is a great step. Wanda, what's on your mind? Degrowth. I want to lay this out. So degrowth is the policy that should be adopted, at least here, and hopefully we can get other countries to do so, because what that does is it covers everything, not just climate change. It covers the sixth mass extinction. Because what degrowth does is it eliminates what's in our economies that are totally non-essential. It stops the flying of the bus of professional athletes around in jets and private jets flying to Super Bowls. The last major Super Bowl, there were 1,500 private jets that flew there. And then these are just examples. And makeup. We don't need makeup. Why do we need to manufacture makeup? See, what I'm getting at is we need to gut the economy and everything that is not essential, that it would absolutely decrease CO2 emissions drastically. We're not acting like this is desperation. They're continuing to talking about reducing emissions, what, 5, 6, 7% a year? Really? We're talking about the life and death on this planet, this planet staying alive. And, and this is like degrowth is still at this point a desperate move because it's like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see if it sticks. Because we got nothing else. And like saying, oh, we still have five years. Well, there's no such thing. How are you going to massively change a, a world economy in five years to reduce emissions enough so that the worst case doesn't happen? That's ridiculous. We've been working on climate change for, what, 25, 30 years, and nothing has happened. We're still in Actually, a lot has happened, Wanda. No. Emissions are are continuing to go up. You're right. But they're not going up anything close to the rate that they were going up before. Your appeal for voluntary simplicity is probably is not even probably certainly a really good and reasonable one. You know, we need to be moving in these directions. We also need to be looking at population growth as well as reducing our overall economic growth. And another huge, probably the largest damaging the environment sector of our economy right now is our military. And that's, you know, a third of our federal spending right now. It's massive. And we've got to do something about that, too. So I'm with you. I'm with you. Harry in Lompoc, California. Hey, Harry, what's up? The Progressive Party has put forward, you know, the Green New Deal, or that's one has been put forward. I was wondering, is there something analogous to that for our educational system within the Progressive Party? Wow, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's the general goal of strengthening public education and reversing the privatization of education, which is, you know, what Republicans have been on a crusade about ever since Bill Bennett was put in as education secretary during the Reagan administration. But a a Green New Deal version of it, I, I don't think so, Harry. 
Uh, I mean, the unique thing about the Green New Deal is that it's manufacturing based. We're, we're going to be building highways. We're going to be building infrastructure. The materials for that, the construction of that, the stuff that we're building itself, all is designed to have you know less of a carbon footprint than the infrastructure we have right now. Thus, green. I'm not sure exactly how you'd do that with education. You could certainly do that with school buildings. Is that what you're talking about? I'm pretty much open and with regards to a philosophical basis for our education. It seems to me that we have a lot of fear that's around learning as opposed to the wonderment which so many of our really intelligent people who are, you know, uh, thinkers and whatever, you know, physics or what have you, they seem to be unfettered by fear and it's more the wonderment. I don't know how it is we'd have a comprehensive strategy that could deal with now and deal with the future and not be so easily perforated by like political attacks because the vehicle that we use in our activism to get kind of education rolling for our young people we have to use politics in a lot of respects i would say you know getting civics education and good science education into our schools would be at the top of that list jerry in aurora colorado hey jerry what's on your mind public transportation is already 90 percent already paid for and with a dress code and a conduct code i'm just wondering why it's not free to ride there are some places where public transportation is free. We had the uh, MAX train here in Portland. It was free for a while. I think they added a small charge to it just because basically uh, homeless people were sleeping on the trains. But there are communities that have tried free public transportation. In several of the cities in Europe, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the specific cities off the top of my head, but there are a number of cities in Europe where they have the same policy. So Don in Durant, Oklahoma. Hey, Don, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? <coughs> The subsidies for the oil and gas industry. And it said if they didn't give them subsidies, they gave them $21 in subsidies for oil and gas for a gallon. Well, I don't know why we right. can't. We had a Democrat in there that we could change some of that subsidies to renewable energy that doesn't pollute the air and would save the earth. That would be a very, very good thing. And I'm in favor of a carbon tax. And frankly, a lot of industry is in favor of a carbon tax. One of the big uh, oil companies, I believe it, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, has come out in favor of a carbon tax. So Don, spot on. Thank you for that. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Alcohol fuel, which could replace gasoline. And I'm going to tell you, there's a distillery in Watsonville just down the road from me. They're making alcohol fuel right now for the agricultural industry in in the Salinas Valley and Pajaro Valley. And in doing so, they're taking up all the agricultural waste from their customers. So they make the alcohol fuel and they sell it back to the various ranchers and growers for their tractors and trucks and so on. They're supposed to retail for cars sometime soon. I don't know. It was supposed to be this year, but it didn't happen for some reason. But think about it, Tom. If you had a mandate that all new trucks and cars had to be hybrids or electric, but for the hybrids, that means you would actually have a 75% reduction in CO2 emissions because half the time the car or truck's going to be on electricity. And then alcohol fuel emits about half the CO2 emissions of burning gasoline. It would be a great way to really take a punch at global warming. Plus, if we stop deforestation, we could probably stop the trend of global warming, hopefully in its tracks. And, you know, using the agricultural waste 
of all the farms and ranches throughout the United States to make alcohol fuel. And the companies that actually could do that best are the big oil companies, because all they would have to do is retool their refineries into distilleries. And you know it's got to be a lot cheaper than drilling for oil in deep oceans. Right. That's my comment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Dennis, uh, spot on. I'm seeing some really good trends in this direction. There was a piece in the Financial Times a week or so ago, speaking to your notion of alternative fuels, how Airbus is going to be rolling out in the next year an experimental jet that is fueled with hydrogen. And the way it works is that the jet engines spin based not on the hydrogen flowing through the jet engines, that would be dangerous, but on electricity. It's an electric jet, and the way that the electricity is being produced is with fuel cells that are fueled by liquid hydrogen. So the plane's fuel is hydrogen, which brings up images of the Hindenburg, unfortunately, but it's completely emission-free because the hydrogen is produced by electrolysis of water. One more thing, Tom. There's a company down in Southern California called TIG-M, T-I-G hyphen M. They are making light rail vehicles that are self-propelled electric or hydrogen, Hmm. uh, either one. And they run in Aruba and Dubai and Santa Cruz County. We're supposed to have a demonstration train here. It's going to be probably in a year. Because of COVID, we would have already had it. But it's clean. It's quiet. No third rail, no over, you know, no overhead wires are needed because it runs just like it, like my Tesla. It runs on battery. Yeah. We are right on the cusp, and we may even be past the cusp, of a major industrial revolution, the, the green revolution, essentially. I think it's unstoppable. I absolutely do. Dennis, thank you for the call. Anybody who's ever driven an electric car will never go back. They're amazing. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's uh, Tom Hartman Book Club is On Fire, The Burning Case for Green New Deal by Naomi Klein. This is from the epilogue, the very end of the book, and it's titled The Capsule Case for Green New Deal. 
Critics of the Green New Deal have plenty of serious arguments for why all this is doomed. Political paralysis in Washington is real. Even in a world where climate change denying Republicans were swept out of power, there would still be plenty of centrist Democrats convinced that their constituents had no appetite for radical change. The plans are expensive and getting the budgets approved will be a Herculean effort. A better course of action we hear would be to advance climate policies that appeal to many on the right, like a shift from coal to nuclear power, or a small tax on carbon that returns the revenues as a dividend to every citizen. The main trouble with these incremental approaches is that they simply won't get the job done. In order to win support from Republicans soaked in fossil fuel money, the price on carbon would be too low to make much of an impact. Nuclear power is expensive and slow to roll out compared with renewables, and that's not to mention the risks associated with uranium mining and waste storage. The truth is we cannot lower emissions as steeply and as rapidly as required to swerve off our perilous trajectory without a sweeping industrial and infrastructure overhaul. The good news is that the Green New Deal isn't nearly as impractical or unrealistic as its many critics claim. I've made the case for why that is throughout the book, but what follows are nine more reasons the Green New Deal has a fighting chance, a chance that will increase every time we go out and make the case. One, it will be a massive job creator. Every part of the world that has invested heavily in renewables and efficiency has found these sectors to be much more powerful job creators than fossil fuels. When New York State made a commitment to get half its energy from renewables by 2030, it immediately saw a spike in job creation. The accelerated timeline of the U.S. Green New Deal will turn it into a jobs machine. Even without federal support, indeed with active sabotage from the White House, the green economy is already creating more jobs than oil and gas. According to the 2018 U.S. Energy and Employment Review, jobs in wind, solar energy efficiency, and other clean energy sectors outnumbered fossil fuels by a rate of 3 to 1. This is happening because of a combination of state and municipal incentives and the plummeting costs of renewables. A Green New Deal would take the industry supernova while ensuring that the jobs have salaries and benefits comparable to those offered in the oil and gas sector. There's no shortage of research to support this. For instance, a 2019 study on the job impacts of a Green New Deal style program in the state of Colorado found that many more jobs would be created than lost. The study published by the Department of Economics and Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst looked at what it would take for the state to achieve a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. It found that roughly 585 non-management jobs would be lost, but that with an investment of $14.5 billion a year in clean energy, quote, Colorado will generate about 100,000 jobs per year in the state. There are many more studies with similarly striking findings. A plan put forward by the U.S. Blue-Green Alliance, a body that brings together unions and environmentalists, estimated that a $40 billion annual investment in public transit and high-speed rail for six years would produce more than 3.5 million jobs during that period. And according to a report from the European Transport Workers Federation, comprehensive policies to reduce emissions in the transport sector by 80% would create 7 million new jobs across that continent, while another 5 million clean energy jobs in Europe would slash electricity emissions by 90%. Number two, paying for it will create a fairer economy. As the 2018 IPCC report on keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius made clear, if we don't take transformative action to lower emissions, the costs will be astronomical. The panel's estimate is that the economic damages of allowing temperatures to increase by 2 degrees Celsius, as opposed to 1.5, would hit $69 trillion globally. 
Of course, rolling out a Green New Deal would have large costs as well, and the plan's advocates have pointed to a variety of ways this can be financed. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that the U.S. version should be financed the way any previous emergency spending has been, by the U.S. Congress simply authorizing the funds, backstopped by the Treasury, the world's currency of last resort. According to New Consensus, the think tank closely associated with their policy proposals, because, quote, the Green New Deal will produce new goods and services to keep pace with and absorb new expenditures, there is no more reason to let fear about financing halt progress than there was to let it halt wars or tax cuts, end quote. The European Spring proposal for a Green New Deal, meanwhile, calls for a global minimum corporate tax rate to capture the tax revenue that the Apples and Googles of the world currently dodge with transnational schemes. It also calls for a reversal of monetary orthodoxy with public investment floating green bonds supported by central banks. Quote, to address the true existential threat that we face today, we must reverse the economic policies that brought us to this brink. Austerity means extinction, end quote. Some analysts, like Christian Parenti, have emphasized that federal governments can drive the transition with their purchasing policies. In short, there are all kinds of ways to raise financing, including ways that attack untenable levels of wealth concentration and shift the burden to those most responsible for climate pollution. And it's not hard to figure out who that is. We know, thanks to research from the Climate Accountability Institute, that a whopping 71% of greenhouse gas emissions since 1988 can be traced to just 100 corporations. On Fire by Naomi Klein. In this week's Geeky Science, a new study published by researchers from the Mayo Clinic found that men who eat a lot of dairy products have an increased risk of prostate cancer. So if you ditch the cheese and milk for plant-based foods, apparently if you're a man anyway, it'll decrease your risk. Lead author John Shin, a Mayo Clinic oncologist, said in a press release, quote, Our review highlighted a cause for concern with high consumption of dairy products. The findings also support a growing body of evidence on the potential benefits of plant-based diets. The American Cancer Society tells us that one out of every nine American men will get prostate cancer. It's one of the most common in the United States, and it has the second highest mortality rate of all cancers for men. Another recent study, by the way, found that eating three servings of mushrooms every week was associated with a reduced risk of prostate cancer. The benefits of a plant-based diet, though, don't stop there. Giving up meat and dairy have been recently associated with a reduction in type 2 diabetes and a healthy gut. So, New Mexico getting a radioactive waste dump it's amazing that we're even still having these conversations. We've been debating this stuff since the 1960s. Kevin Camps is on the line with us. He's the nuclear waste specialist at beyondnuclear.org. Kevin, welcome back to the program. Tell us about this. The irradiated nuclear fuel, highly radioactive waste, is the same stuff that exploded and burned at Chernobyl. You know, they were in thick armored vehicles, right? And they were worried about getting killed through the armor. So, yeah, these containers they'd use for shipping the waste from mostly eastern reactors out to New Mexico, yeah, it's thick wall, but is it thick enough to survive a severe accident? Is it thick enough to survive a terrorist attack? Likelihood is no. They're probably going to have breaches and release contents, and it's going to be a radiological catastrophe. They're talking about shipping yeah. 10,000 giant containers out to New Mexico from eastern reactors and parking them in southeastern New Mexico, and chances are it'll just stay there at the surface forever. 
And uh, how are they going to be shipped? Is this by truck or by rail car? And what are the dangers associated with that? They say mostly rail because these containers are so big. They're 180 tons in weight, so they can't go down the interstate highways. They're too heavy. So it's mostly rail, but there's two dozen plus reactors in the country that lack direct rail access. So they're going to have to use either heavy haul trucks or barges on that front leg to get the waste to the nearest railhead, put it on a train, ship it out to New Mexico. In place like Michigan, those barge shipments are on Lake Michigan into the port of Muskegon, on the Wisconsin side, into the port of Milwaukee, if one of these things goes down and releases its contents into Lake Michigan, that's going to poison the drinking water supply for 40 million people in two countries and a large number of Native American First Nations. There's a total of 129 commercial reactors, and fortunately a lot of them have shut down, not enough. There are still 94 operating, and at every one of these 129 commercial reactors in the country, they are still sitting on most or all of the high-level radioactive waste they've ever generated. And that's our preferred alternative to this insane Holtec plan in New Mexico is hardened on-site storage. And where that's not safe enough, then near-site, as near as possible to the point of generation, to buy us some time to figure out what to do long-term. But instead, they just want to rush into this mobile Chernobyl campaign and stick it to New Mexico, which has already gotten it you know, for 75 years, ever since Los Alamos set up shop, ever since the Trinity blast, it's been nuclear colonialism and radioactive racism for the people of New Mexico who are majority minority. They are Latinx, they are indigenous, they are black, the minority is white. So guess where they're choosing to ship all of the high level radioactive commercial waste in the country? Amazing. And tell us about the part of New Mexico where they want to put this stuff. And what, are they just going to store it in in drums on the desert? I mean, how do they do this? Well, these canisters are stainless steel. They are thin-walled, so you need radiation shielding around these canisters, or you're going to get a fatal dose of radiation, just like in that Chernobyl testimony you read. So Holtec's plan is to dig pits in the desert floor and lower these things down in there. They've had problems with that process at San Onofre, California, for example. They almost dropped one. It's like a 20-foot drop, and it could have breached the canister if they had at San Onofre a couple years ago. So it's a very problematic plan. Uh, The environmental injustice is immense. So you've got a group like Alliance for Environmental Strategies, a Latinx uh, environmental justice group in southeastern New Mexico, the NRC licensing uh, panel would not even recognize their legal standing in the proceeding. So the NRC proceedings are an environmental injustice. And what do you got in that neck of the woods? You got uranium enrichment at Urenco, right in Eunice, New Mexico. You've got waste control specialists, national low-level radioactive waste dump a few miles away in West Texas. You've got the waste isolation pilot plant. That's military plutonium disposal all in this little neck of the woods with plans for more nuclear facilities. But this Holtec high-level radioactive waste dump, it would be the biggest such dump in the world, is, you know, just the biggest environmental injustice of all. And that's saying something. There was a lot of organized opposition to doing this to Nevada back in the day, back when Harry Reid was (laughs) from Nevada, was uh, running the Senate. Is there organized opposition to this? I mean, is is this a done deal or is this something in process? And if so, how could people insert themselves into that process? It's in process. Uh, Today is the last day for public comment on this proposal. And uh, so comments are going into the Nuclear Regulatory Commission by the thousands. At our homepage, beyondnuclear.org, we have 
simple web forms you can use to you know, file your individual comments. We also have groups signing on to a coalition letter. We're over 100 groups now across the country. And with such efforts, we stopped the yucca dump for the past 33 years. Incredibly, Holtec and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission are assuming that yucca is still going to be the permanent repository. That's how they justify calling this plan in New Mexico interim or temporary. Yucca is not happening. And so this New Mexico dump is going to become de facto permanent surface storage. I call it a parking lot dump. Is this above the uh, Ogallala Aquifer? I mean, is there, if one of these things breaches in addition to the risk on the surface, is there an underground risk as well? There are aquifers beneath this New Mexico site. In fact, there are surface water bodies. Uh, Laguna Gatuna and Laguna Plata are immediately adjacent. So there are surface and groundwater impacts. Yoglala is not far away. And in fact, that waste control specialist, low-level radioactive waste dump in Texas, 40 miles from this Holtec site, has also proposed a high-level radioactive waste consolidated interim storage facility. And WCS is right on top of the Oglala. They uh, changed the paperwork in their license application to make it look like the Oglala had moved. I mean, the Oglala fluctuates with rainfall (laughs) over time. It is right above the Oglala. So it would put eight states' uh, groundwater at risk from, you know, Texas up to South Dakota. The Oglala Aquifer is named after the Oglala Lakota in South Dakota. That's how far that aquifer extends. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's a big chunk of the central part of the United States. We're talking with Kevin Camps, the nuclear waste specialist with beyondnuclear.org. Kevin, you said that your preferred, and I assume when you said our, you're referring to beyond nuclear, but that your preferred way of dealing with the nuclear waste that's being produced by the nuclear power industry right now is on-site, secure, safe storage. What does that look like? And is that safe? We've got 200 groups from all 50 states who have endorsed hardened on-site storage. And what it looks like is get the irradiated nuclear fuel out of the pools to prevent catastrophic fires that are possible. And then put it into dry casks, yes, but dry casks that are well-designed, well-made, and then fortified against attacks, safeguarded against accidents, monitored for radiation, pressure, and temperature. None of that is going on. We're taking huge risks with the storage right now. And even if this New Mexico dump opened today, it would take decades to move all the waste out there. That means decades of risk at the reactor sites, inevitably. So why not do it right at the reactor sites? That's what we've been calling for for 20 years at this point. Are they proposing to do this on tribal land? Yes, the Mescalero Apache are nearby, and the Comanche have holdings, the Hopi have holdings down there. This is tribal land. Amazing, amazing. Kevin Camps, nuclear waste specialist at Beyond Nuclear. You can get over to beyondnuclear.org today and register your objections about this with the NRC. Kevin, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking to you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? 
maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our book today is Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jaxo, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm going to start with the last paragraph of chapter one, and then I'll start reading chapter two. In hindsight, the Fukushima incident revealed what has long been the sad truth about nuclear safety. The nuclear power industry has developed too much control over the NRC and Congress. In the aftermath of the accident, I found myself moving from my role as a scientist impressed by nuclear power to a fierce nuclear safety advocate. I now believe that nuclear power is more hazardous than it's worth. Because the industry relies too much on controlling its own regulation, the continued use of nuclear power will lead to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must all confront. Chapter 2. The Fukushima accident in Japan was not the first accident to belie the promise of nuclear power. In its early years, the commercial nuclear industry had only a limited understanding of the operations, science, and engineering of actual power plants. This ignorance led to the first major nuclear power plant accident just outside Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania, in 1979. Three Mile Island prompted a flurry of reforms and a pile of promises that the public would be protected from future nuclear calamities. Through the mid-1980s, it appeared these promises were being kept. Construction on new plants slowly resumed without major accidents. Then suddenly, strange radiation measurements were detected in Sweden. Governments in Europe and throughout the world soon learned that a disaster had occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. Like a developing photograph in a bath of chemicals, the reality of nuclear power was starting to come clear. One nuclear accident was an oversight, a mistake, an aberration. Two nuclear accidents hinted at a serious problem with the technology. A third would cement the conclusion that nuclear power plants were simply going to have accidents on a relatively consistent schedule. After Three Mile Island, after Chernobyl, the third accident nearly occurred in 2002 at the troubled Davis-Bessie nuclear power plant in Ohio. The problem is that with each new accident, all the people in charge of nuclear safety seemed to revert to the belief that this one would be the last one. As chairman of the NRC, I battled nearly every day against this instinct to believe that the worst was over. You can prepare for the next accident only if you get all the players to admit that a next one is coming, even if and when are impossible to predict. Before Fukushima, too many people I encountered simply did not believe the next one would ever come. Their view is not surprising. Accidents are rare in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. It happened decades earlier. Yet I continue to believe I could challenge this complacency. I seized one opportunity just after I became chairman. Four days before President Obama tapped me to lead the commission, I spoke at a conference organized by the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, an industry group of professionals entering the field as nuclear operators, designers of reactors, or academic experts in nuclear technology. As I looked out at the crowd, it dawned on me that many of these people had never lived through a nuclear power accident. Even if I had been only nine years old when Three Mile Island occurred. When Chernobyl happened, I was a teenager more worried about surviving my freshman year of high school than about nuclear disaster. The people I was speaking to were even younger. 
I wondered how they had experienced these seminal events. Being a scientist, I decided to conduct an experiment. I asked everyone in the audience to stand if they were born after 1979, the year of Three Mile Island. Nearly everyone stood. After they sat down, I asked them to stand if they were born after 1986, the date of the Chernobyl accident. Once again, nearly everyone stood. These industry-defining accidents have become dry case studies taught in college classes. The next generation of American nuclear power professionals has never experienced the confusion of a nuclear accident as it is happening. And so it's essential that we remember and teach the lessons of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. For reviewing these accidents shows common themes of missed opportunity, human failings, and technological overconfidence. No amount of forgetting can change these simple facts. The March 1979 accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania seems almost like something out of a science fiction horror film. The cover of Time magazine captured the national mood of chaos, confusion, and fear. The emergency red phrase nuclear nightmare slashed across the dark black cooling towers of the plant. There was no live streamed video as there would be after the Fukushima accident, but the public could imagine the scene inside the reactor. Just 12 days before the accident, the China Syndrome, a feature film starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas as reporters who uncover a major incident in a nuclear plant, had been released. Perhaps the hundreds of journalists gathered outside Harrisburg believed they too would land such a story. It started on March 28th at around 4 a.m. when a water pump stopped working. The failed pump affected the steam generators, large cylinders filled with many tiny metal tubes that help turn hot water from the nuclear engine into steam so that the turbines can generate electricity. When the flow of water was cut off, this massive heat exchange stopped working, creating the conditions for a serious accident. The reactor engine was immediately turned off, but so long as the reactor fuel remained hot, which it would for quite some time, its natural radioactive decay would continue, producing enough heat, called decay heat, to melt through the metal containers enclosing the reactor fuel. The same problem would later affect Fukushima. And then he goes through the whole process there. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jackso. Marge in La Puebla, New Mexico. Hey, Marge, what's on your mind today? Approximately 2013, there was an article in Water Journal and that comes from the University of Washington in the state, titled something like Deactivation of Radioactivity from Radioactive Waste. And the author is a researcher, a scientist from uh, Japan. His first initial is S. And last name is spelled S-U-G-I-H-A-R-A. And he used nuclear waste from Fujimaya in his laboratory process. He said that it worked quickly and inexpensively to deactivate that radioactivity. Two years later, there was a follow-up article in a different journal, an international journal. And in that article, he narrowed his claim. He said his process works for all levels of radioactive waste except plutonium and uranium. I'm not a scientist. I have no credentials. But I have two questions for him. Maybe you could get through. First question, to verify, does his process work for transuranic waste? Transuranic waste, as you probably know, is mid-level waste, radioactive waste. And it is deposited in WIP in salt mines in southern New Mexico. So secondly, um, is he working, uh, is the scientist working on a process to deactivate uranium and plutonium? I could be wrong on this. My recollection is that transuranic refers to that 
last row of the periodic table, maybe I'm characterizing this wrong, but to the elements that are actually heavier than uranium, that are sometimes referred to as actinides and superactinides, or uh, boy, it's been a long time since I studied this stuff, but the super heavy elements, I don't see any way to inactivate a radioactive element. It has to decay. I mean, it's, it's got to be emitting typically protons, I believe. I'm in over my head here, but the effort is not to inactivate it, it's to filter it out. And these heavy elements, because they're large, large molecules, are fairly easy to filter with just mechanical filtration. That, that's the problem that they have at Fukushima, is that they've got this abundance of tritium, which is helium, which is the smallest, uh, you know, or one of the smallest elements, and it's really hard to filter because it just slides through anything. Well, but, I you know, hear you. This guy's but asserting that he can change radioactive half-life. There's something going on there that I don't think the world of physics has ever heard of. In Belfair, Washington. Hey, Ed, what's up? I read an mm-hmm. article in the Rolling Stone a few months back, and it was about the fracking industry in Pennsylvania. The gist of it, what I remember the most out of it, was these truck drivers are hauling this chemical, this slur, with no hazmat suits, and they're dispersing this stuff or getting rid of it or whatever they're doing with it. But what upset me the most is they're getting this on their clothes. It's eating their clothes. They're getting sores on their bodies. But the bottom line, they're making $16 an hour, no health care, no retirement. It's like the human race has become a throwaway society. They don't care about the working class. It's corporations that are raking in all the money, but throw the human away as soon as they're burnt up. Yeah, I agree, Ed. And I am, in my opinion, fracking is contributing to global warming. Fracking is polluting communities. Fracking is poisoning the water in some places. That said, until we can make a clean transition to green energy, we're going to have to continue having fracking. But eventually, I would like to see, and you know, it might be 20, 30 years down the road, but eventually I think we would all like to see us get off fossil fuels, including natural gas, and get onto renewable energy. And doing so will create millions of jobs and it will clean our environment. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 